Please join with me as we read from 2 Kings 7, um, verses 3 to 20. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a, good, uh, is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get, them, get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two seers of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seer of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beck. Well, let's pray as we dive into this text. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, 
we are so uh, in wonder and awe of how great you are, of how great your salvation is. Father, we pray that as we uh, look at this text, may your spirit shape us, change us, work in our hearts so that our desire would be for you to glorify you, to continue to share your good news in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the most natural thing to do with good news is to announce it. This is why my sister sent a message to our family WhatsApp group this week to say that she had been offered a full-time job. Great news. We're all very thankful. Lots of hands raised emojis being posted in the family chat group. It was a wonderful answer to prayer. This is also why Robin and I have video called my family every time we have discovered that we were pregnant and have recorded it. It's great news. We wanted to share it. This is also why everything from, from year 12 graduations to a new puppy are posted to social media with, you know, retro-filtered, totally natural photos, right? It's just something that naturally flows out of us, that when we have good news to share, we, it, we just want to share it with everybody. So why, then, why is it so hard to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm sure I'm not alone in finding this to be a difficult task. I'm sure I'm not the only one who wonders why it's, it's not natural for me to share the good news with others. I mean, if sharing other good news, other things about my life, other things that are so great that I want other people to know about is so easy and natural, why is it that this good news the best good news is so much harder to share with others. This morning, as we consider our passage, as we looked, saw before, I want us to ask the question, what must we do with the good news of Jesus Christ? What must we do with the good news of Jesus? Well, as we explore this morning's passage, I have four points for you that map onto its different sections, and the second will be by far the longest just in case you're worried uh, by the time we get to the end of point two. So, with uh, Bibles and hearts and minds open, let's begin at point one. First being, sorry, let me get this up. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. Now, in this morning's passage, we see how Elisha's prophetic word in verse one from last week comes true that there will be so much food that the markets will flip and they will go from being crazy expensive to being far more affordable. And it begins with these four lepers that we see in verse 3. These guys, they realize that they are caught between a rock and a hard place. They are basically caught between the options of death by starvation and death by the sword from their enemies. But in, in their calculation, uh, which is a sensible one, in their minds, death by hunger in, hunger in a famine-ravaged city, that's a guarantee. There is no way you're going to escape that. Whereas, they say, at least, if we roll the dice and if we go to the enemy, to the camp of the Syrians, I mean, who knows, right? Maybe they'll show us some mercy. 
it might, you know, it might be a small chance, maybe it's, it's far more likely they're just going to run us through with the sword, but at least there's, there's a tiny chance. Compared to that other option, you know, this is one worth taking. If they kill us, well, that was going to happen anyway. And so, as we read in verse 5, these four lepers, they get up and they wait until dusk, twilight, when it's a little bit darker, and they go to the, the edge of the camp. And as they get there, behold, the camp is empty. It's empty. And so the narrator here steps in to give us an explanation of what has happened before the lepers actually arrived. Let's have a read from verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. Sorry. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. You might remember from last week that the desperate women, they cried out to the king for help. And despite the king of Israel being the highest authority in the country, there was nothing that the king could do. He was in just as desperate a situation as they were, and this situation that Samaria was in was above his rank. He was powerless to save these women, and he was powerless to save his city from the siege. But that is not the Lord. He is not powerless. You know, interestingly, and perhaps intentionally, the Hebrew word used for the Lord here is, is not the one that we most often see in capital letters. Normally, when that is written, it is referring to God's name, Yahweh, and that identifies Him and His uniqueness. But here in this passage, what we see is the word Adonai, which is actually a, a more general term used for the word Lord or Master. And so in these verses, what we see is that God, who is the Lord, who is the ruler, the ultimate king, the king of kings, he is the one who has the highest authority and the power to save. Neither the king of Israel nor the king of Syria could save their people from the Lord's power and his might. He is the one. He is the one who achieves his victory without needing to use earthly might. All he does is makes the Syrians he hear the sound of a great army and they flee. Perhaps these are the same chariots and horses of fire that uh, Elisha's servant saw when he opened his eyes. Whether they were or not, well, it once again underscores the point. God is all-powerful. And you cannot beat him. Even if you have all the chariots and horses in the world, you cannot overpower him. And so, if God fights for Israel, which he has done over and over again in their history, then it doesn't matter how big your army is. Exodus 14, 25 is another example of that. How the Egyptians were thwarted by the Lord. 
And so because this is who God is, because He is the one who is all-powerful, then you can trust that He is the one, that He is the one who saves, and that He is the only one who can save. The unbelieving captain, he didn't reckon with the God who has hordes of horses and chariots at his beck and call. And the Lord saves Israel without even needing to crush Syria. And so the fact that the Syrians here leave everything behind, including their horses and their donkeys, everything indicates that what it was that, was, what that, that they heard, that really terrified them. I mean, if you don't have time to like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think to myself, wouldn't it be faster to <laughs> ride away on a horse than it would be to just run and abandon it? But if you were that frightened out of your mind, you don't even have the presence of mind to, to think, yeah, that would be a smarter move. Clearly, there was an urgent, frightening danger right there. And, you know, their theory, their explanation where they say uh, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian armies uh, is, actually has some good archaeological backing. You see, around this time, Egypt didn't want Assyria, who was further to the north, to gain too much power in this region. And so helping Israel was in Egypt's national interest. They actually did that, at least on one occasion, where Egypt and Israel formed an alliance to fight against the north. And so this is a very real possibility that Israel could ask for their help and that they would give it. And so if God's sound effect guy was the best in the business, which I'm sure he was, then what the Syrians heard and with that going on in the background, was enough to send them packing without packing, running, fleeing. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, this isn't the only time God has delivered them this way. God's used sound effects to save His people before. We were reminded last week that uh, it is the Lord who judges. And so we see this week how it is Him who saves by the power of His Word. And today we see how God has done that without even lifting a finger. Friends, the Lord saves. It is He who saves. He is the one who can answer the prayer of Psalm 20, which we read at the beginning of our gathering today. It is is not just a king. He is not just a king, but he is the king of kings. And we cry out to him for our salvation, and he answers us. And he saves us through his son, Jesus, the high king. 1 Timothy 6.15 describes Jesus as the blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The king of Israel was limited in his ability to save, but God is not. And the one who would come later in the line of David, the promised king, who would rule on his throne forever, he would not be limited. And nor would he fail to save his people, his church, and his bride. And that, dear friends, is good news. That is good news. And that brings us to point two. 
proclaim good news. Let's read verse 8. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Talk about a score, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this is a pirate's dream. As God has done several times in Israel's history, like when they plundered the Egyptians in Exodus 12 after he freed them from slavery, God not only saves them, but he graciously gives the Israelites spoils that they do not deserve. Just imagine it. You're about to die from starvation. You thought you were going to the Syrians with only the slightest chance of not dying. And instead, you you find yourself now with with riches and food to feast on beyond your wildest dreams. For these lepers, this camp, it was at the end of a rainbow. And, you know, they didn't just find a leprechaun with a pot of gold. They found like multiple pots of gold and multiple leprechauns, maybe. But you get the point. It's it's no wonder that the sense that we get of, of their response is the kind that you'd expect. They, they go from tent to tent and they stuff them, their faces with food and they grab bits and they hide them and they're thinking this is you know, the, the ultimate payday. And they're indulging in the spoils of God's salvation. Friends, make no mistake. There are always spoils to be enjoyed in the Lord's salvation. There are always spoils to be enjoyed in the Lord's salvation. And that is just as true in the gospel. Sometimes these spoils are not what you'd expect. For Israel, manna in the wilderness, after God had freed them from slavery in Egypt, while they made their way to the promised land, that wasn't their idea of blessing. That wasn't their idea of the spoils of God's salvation. They couldn't see how that was something that God did for their good and an opportunity for them to grow in trust and obedience to Him. They wanted to sit around pots of meat back in Egypt. But the New Testament, it also makes it abundantly clear that following Jesus guarantees persecution. That if you want to follow him, that is going to come. First, the Second Timothy three twelve is a good example of that. But you know, the spoils of the Christian life are not exclusively found in life after death. They will definitely be there. That's for sure. The First Corinthians nine twenty four to twenty five is a, is just one of the places that teach that. No, there are great joys to be found not just in life after death when we are with Jesus, but also in the here and the now. Even when they might not feel pleasant at the time. Even when they might not be what you think you would like the Christian life to be. Do you believe that is true? Let me give you just a short list of some of the spoils of God's salvation in Christ. If you're taking notes and you like to write furiously, then go for it. 
Otherwise, just look at the screen and uh, have a listen and grab a copy of the slides later. Firstly, God promises provision. As we see in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, He knows what you need even before you ask, and He will provide it for you. He promises abundant life, as we hear in John 10.10, life that is full and overflowing, not life that is empty and unsatisfying, which is what you have when you don't know Jesus. God promises forgiveness for your sin, as we read in Ephesians 1.7, which has more of a practical benefit to you in this life than perhaps you might realize. It is not just the kind, the, something that we can rejoice in because our sins have been forgiven, but there is a great practical benefit to that in how we live. God promises purpose. 1 Corinthians 9, 26-27, Hebrews 12, 1-2, which again, probably has more of a practical benefit than we realize. There's a reason why Stephen Hawking, as an atheist, encourages his children to find purpose in their work. Because he knows, or he knew, that if they let themselves face the, the unavoidable existential dread that comes from an atheistic or agnostic worldview that they would have significant mental health problems. God promises confidence in death. Philippians 1, 20 to 21. Knowing what happens after you die, it frees you to live in this life with courage and with liberty and with confidence because you know how the story ends. One of the spoils is a clear conscience. Hebrews 10, 22. Knowing that Jesus allows you to face your own failures and your own sins head on. Knowing that because you, you can't hide these things from God. And even as you continue to fight those sins with the Spirit's help, even when you fail in them again and again, your conscience is cleared through repentance and trust in God's forgiveness in Christ. One of the spoils again of the Christian life is having joy in all circumstances. 1 Peter 1, 6. And this, this isn't the same thing as what people, some people call Toxic positivity. That, that is legitimately a thing. You know, where you're, you're just fake happy all the time and you never let yourself grieve. No, this, this is about having a deep well of joy in knowing that your biggest problem has found the biggest solution in Jesus. God promises family in Mark 10, 29 to 30. He adopts you into a family called his church, where he gives you brothers and sisters in Christ, even if your earthly family has failed you. And of course, in the same verse, God promises persecution. Jesus promises that we will receive them, and he considers these to be a blessing to us. He lists it in that exact same list of the joy of what we will know when we choose to follow Him. God disciplines those He loves, and He does so in order that we might grow in being more like Christ and trusting in Him. Now, that is by no means an exhaustive list. Nor is it an exhaustive list of references. I mean, I just gave you one or two for some of those. But I wanted to give you just a snapshot of the spoils of the good news of knowing salvation 
in Jesus. And all of that, all of that, even pales in comparison to the infinite spoils of eternity with God, which you can read about in Revelation 21. But with such great spoils comes the danger of not wanting to share them. That's exactly what these lepers realized. Let's read verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. We are not doing right, they say. Like I said at the beginning, sharing good news, it's the most natural thing to do with it, right? That's what these guys recognize. They recognize that that what they discovered here in the middle of the night was a great day of the Lord's salvation. He had delivered them from the clutches of the Syrian army, He had broken the bonds of death and starvation that hung over them in their siege. And he had graciously given them riches and spoils and abundant provision. After who knows how long being prisoners in their own city, this is good news that must be shared. And I say must there intentionally. These lepers, they recognize that there is actually a moral obligation for them to deliver this news to their fellow countrymen and women. They recognize that to withhold that news from others will result in punishment. Now, it could very well be, as some people think, that these lepers here are just talking about what might happen if the people in the city find out that they knew and they didn't tell him. But I think the lepers here recognize that this actually has more to do, or has, has to do with more than just those consequences, which is why they speak of this in, terms, in, in moral terms, why they say that we are not doing right. And so, brothers and sisters, if it is true that not sharing the good news about God saving this city from starvation is wrong, then how much more is it wrong for us to not share with others the good news of salvation from sin? God has delivered us from the clutches of the enemy and broken the bonds of death. He has graciously given us riches and spoils and abundant provision in Christ. Is that not good news that we must share with others? Now, let me be clear that the status of a believer in Christ is one of not being under condemnation, as Romans 8, 1 makes clear. And so we need not fear eternal punishment for failing in this. That is not the status of one who is in Christ. But it is certainly true that to neglect the sharing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to disobey God's clear commands in Scripture and to continue in sin. 
After all, Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, 19-20 was to instruct His disciples to make disciples, to go and make disciples. The Apostle Paul talks about how he is under obligation to share the gospel in Romans 1.14 and that there is necessity laid upon him to preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9.16. You see, for the Christian, this, this isn't a job that we leave for those who are gifted in evangelism. This is not something where we say, oh, that's just not my gifting, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. No, it's a task for all of us. There certainly are people who are more gifted in it, who are better at it than others. So please hear me. Do do not test whether you have been obedient or faithful in this by comparing yourself and your effectiveness in evangelism with another fellow Christian. We aren't trying to reach certain sales quotas. We're We're not giving more bonuses to those who close more gospel deals. It's not how it works. But this is about being obedient with who God has made you to be and with who, whom He has placed in your life. It would be safe to say that if you are doing nothing in this, I mean absolutely nothing. I mean, if you aren't even praying about your unbelieving friends, if you aren't asking God to help you grow in sharing the gospel, if you aren't looking for opportunities to build relationships with others and to share the gospel with them, then you are living in disobedience. Now, if that hits you hard, please hear me. Don't lose hope. God has bountiful grace for you. Bountiful grace. Confess your sin, turn to Christ and plead with Him to be at work in you, to grow your love for the spiritually dead that are walking around around us and to share the gospel with them. I say that because I am no stranger to the guilt and the pressure of this as a Christian. I need to remind myself of God's bountiful grace in my failures. You know, it's a terrible feeling knowing that you have been given one of the most important tasks you will ever be given by the Lord Almighty. And you see yourself fail in that over and over again. And you wonder if you truly believe it or if your heart really is in it. I've spent the majority of my Christian life feeling guilty about being a terrible evangelist and then feeling helpless about what to do to get any better at it. Friends, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. And you know, if fear of punishment is an insufficient motivator in the long run, then, well, what should we do? Well, let me give you five biblical considerations to help you increase in your faithfulness as a herald of the good news. I hope and trust that they will be useful to you. Firstly, let love be your guide. 
Let love be your guide. As Christians being motivated to do what's right and to obey God, it's not just something that we do because we have to. Yes, it is that, but it is more than that. As Jesus says often in John 14, multiple times, I gave up looking for more references in the chapter. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who keeps them, it is he who loves me. You see, it is out of love that we obey Christ. It is out of love for Jesus that we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. And see, this is why guilting people into being evangelistic never has lasting effect. When you do that, you either discourage people and you wear them out because they're not good enough, or you puff them up with pride because they're the ones who are really great at it. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling to be motivated to share your faith, meditate again on Christ's love for you and consider your own love for Him and ask the Lord to move your heart from obeying Him out of obligation to obeying Him out of love. It is only when It is only then that you'll find lasting motivation. It's only then that you'll find the the fuel to continue to drive you, to keep pressing on and sharing the gospel with others, to be His herald. But you know, it's not just love for God that drives us. It is also love for others. The second greatest commandment, of course, is to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. Without this, you'll be selling goods, not sharing gospel. Without love for your neighbor, you'll be selling goods, not sharing gospel. Growing up, I found among Christians uh, that this was something that was often assumed, that we do it because we love people, and it was then, therefore, forgotten. And so that led to evangelism, which became a, a boasting about numbers game. Or as J.I. Packer puts it in uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, scalp-hunting zeal. And if it gets to this point, that this is what motivates us in our evangelism, then you're likely to end up feeling guilty about making friends and getting to know people so that you can share the gospel. But you see, if at bottom, if at bottom you are doing this because your motivation is love, because you've continued to to ask God to increase your love for your neighbor, then you can unashamedly make the most of every opportunity you have. After all, it's the most natural thing to want to share the spoils with the people you love, isn't it? I mean, personally, I found this difficult to navigate at first. For me, it felt, it felt fake. It felt like a bait and switch, you know, as though I was offering friendship to somebody, but really, in reality, my new friend is my next target. But as I've grown in my own love for God, that has increased my love for others. It's helped me to realize that just like with other good news in my life, I want to share what is most precious to me with them. And not only that, not only because it's precious to me, but because I know that there are boundless spoils that they can share into. Imagine if you discovered a cure for your friend's cancer, or or after they were unemployed for years, you actually had a job lined up for them. 
Wouldn't you just be ecstatic? Wouldn't you be overjoyed to be able to share that with them? How much more the gospel? My point to reiterate is not to guilt you into sharing the gospel, but to help you to just drill down deeper into your own heart so that you might, by God's grace, have a deep well of love for God and of love for others that just gushes out in a desire to make and to take every opportunity that you can to share the good news. Let love be your guide. Secondly, sharing the gospel glorifies God. It does so in many ways, but Revelation 7, 9 to 12, I think shows us a glorious picture of this. It paints a a beautiful picture of people all over the world from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping God, praising Him for His great salvation. If you find that your passion to proclaim the good news is waning, as you grow to desire to glorify God in your life, spend some time in this passage. Thirdly, ask God to help you fear Him more and to fear other people less. One of the main reasons that we fail in this task is because we fear what others think of us more than what God thinks of us. Ed Welch, who wrote the, the quintessential book on fear of man, fear of others, called When People Are Big and God Is Small, a book well worth reading if you have not read it yet. He says this, he lists a bunch of ways that fear of others, fear of man, shows up in our lives, and then after he's done that, he says this, does it include you yet? If not, consider just one word, evangelism. Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because others might think you are an irrational fool? Gotcha. Welch put that in there because he knows that this is a universal feeling among Christians. Personally, I know this all too well. As someone who generally gets along with most people, one of the biggest barriers for me has always been knowing that bringing up the gospel can be really offensive or awkward and it can shut down the conversation and it can make people think I'm an irrational fool. It's only when I realized that it was worth the risk of looking like a fool or getting someone offside because I loved God and them more than what they thought of me, that by the grace of God, things changed in my own life. Now, I know this requires wisdom. Of course, you don't want to ruin later opportunities to talk about Jesus with someone by introducing it too soon in the relationship. I understand that there is wisdom that we need to apply in this. But I think it would be pretty accurate to say that for most of us, if not all of us, our greater risk is that we never bring God up at all. Our greater risk is that we'll be too afraid to say anything. I pray that we will grow in being like Peter and John who declared in Acts 4, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Fourthly, do it together. Do it together. I know I've mentioned this before, but make use of the membership of your church. There are some among us who are excellent natural evangelists. Introduce your friends to them. Ask to catch up together. Hey, let's have lunch. Come and meet my mate. Don't tell them he's a great evangelist, but just bring them along. Ask them what they do and learn from their wisdom. Ask how they think through, how they approach these things with their friends. It is good for the foot to humble himself and ask the mouth how not to get foot in mouth while sharing the gospel. I don't know if you followed me in that, and I know that that mangles the metaphor of the body of Christ, but I think you get what I mean. You know, somebody who uh, it constantly encourages me in this is Jess. I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but almost every time I chat with her, there is a friend of hers that I can be praying for, that she is catching up with, that she is seeking to develop and grow a relationship with so that she may share the gospel with them. Such an encouragement. You know, you can even apply this immediately after our gathering this morning. Why don't you use lunch this afternoon as an opportunity to share with and to encourage one another in this? Fifthly and finally, ask God for help, trusting that it is ultimately His work. We face so many barriers in our world and in ourselves when it comes to proclaiming this good news. And that's why God promised that He would give us His Spirit to empower us and to give us the words. Acts 1.8 is another good example of that. God's Holy Spirit was poured out to the early church, and He is the same Spirit that works in you today to continue to take the message of, gospel, of the gospel from place to place, from city to city, and from nation to nation. His Spirit empowers us. And what does His Spirit empower us to do? Well, as we read in Acts 1.8, to be witnesses. To be those who tell of His good news and His work. We ultimately, we are not the ones who convert people. It's not up to us. We can't force people to make those decisions. As John 3 and 1 Corinthians 2 make clear, it is something that is birthed of the Spirit of God. God is the one who converts. We are called to be witnesses. Here's how Mark Dever puts it in, again, a book worth reading, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. If you will realize that conversion always accompanies proclaiming the gospel and the Spirit's work, then you will stop trying to do the Spirit's work and you will give yourself to proclaiming the gospel. Just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage us all to remember this great commission and to spur one another on in sharing the good news of Jesus.
I know it can be difficult, but necessity is laid upon us all to preach the gospel. Woe to us if we preach not the gospel. You know, when I first went into pastoral ministry, uh, I, I thought it would be my way of serving God and His church because I was such a lousy evangelist. I, I figured that I could compensate for my lack of evangelistic effectiveness and zeal by just, you know, being a pastor who's a good carer of the sheep. I, I just, I'll just devote all of my time to that and my efforts and energy. And it was only when I realized that Paul makes it clear to Timothy that a pastor must do the work of an evangelist, that I didn't have a choice, I realized it was something I couldn't avoid. And so as I wrestled with this, as I thought through it, as I prayed through it, I was prepared to give up pastoral ministry if I didn't see a change in this in my own life. I thought, if I cannot faithfully obey, then I should not be in ministry. And yet, as God so often does in His grace, even though that was the catalyst that began me to, that, that started me on a path of realizing how much more attention I needed to give to this, that wasn't the motivation that led to a sustainable change in my own heart. It was all the things that I meant, just mentioned. God graciously used that initial question to sanctify me and to grow me in this, which is something that, of course, He is still doing today. I pray, I pray that we would be a church that joyfully, that passionately, and at every opportunity proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will hear. And to do so until our dying days. Brothers and sisters, proclaim good news. But what should we and we hope other people do with that good news once we share it? Well, that brings us to point three. Test the truth. Test the truth. The lepers, they call out uh, or proclaim, another way of translating that word, the good news to the gatekeepers of the city in verse 10. I tell them what they saw. And then the gatekeepers, they take that message, the one that, check it out, the Syrians have left, and there's all this stuff for us to enjoy in. The gatekeepers then proclaim that news on, and it, and, and it goes on to the king's household in verse 11. And so there is a chain of, of uh, bringing that message here going on. Good news, you see, it travels quickly. And so it is with the gospel. You know, this is why Christianity has spread so rapidly in the first century and still continues to spread, even in spite of its decline in the West. Good news spreads quickly. It reaches the king who gets up in the middle of the night and he hears the news and this is his response. I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves. 
in the open country thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. Now, this is legitimate enough. I mean, his ancestors, the Israelites, employed this same tactic of ambush. You can read about that in Joshua 8. And it's not like this would have been an uncommon military strategy. It's still one we use today. But consider the fact that Elisha told him the day before that tomorrow God would save Samaria. I get that the king of Israel here is being cautious. But even if you had a shred of faith, especially after seeing all that God had already done through Elisha, after seeing everything, the, the, the supernatural uh, gifts that God has given to Elijah that the king clearly knows he has. I mean, don't you think that that would give you some cause to perhaps believe that maybe this is the Lord's salvation? Well, just like Naaman, once again, it's the servants who see clearly and who talk some sense to the man in power. One of them suggests with the same kind of logic that the lepers had that, you know, look, we're not going to last much longer here anyway. So we might as well take five of the horses that we have left, see whether what the lepers are saying is true. You see, in the servants' minds, even a small hope is worth the risk because they're going to be goners anyway. And so as we see in verses 14 and 15, the king agrees and he sends off a cohort, perhaps, perhaps smaller than what they'd suggested, two horses as opposed to five, or it also could be understood as two chariots, two horses and chariots, meaning there might have been more horses. We don't know, not enough detail. Whatever the reason for the different numbers, the messages go out and they do what they were sent to do. And as we know and would expect, they go out and confirm that the good news is indeed true. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me firstly say I love the fact that you're here. You're always, always welcome here. And as you just heard me say for the last 20 minutes or so, please know that I and other Christians here today would love to talk to you about the good news of Jesus. But wherever you're at with that, let me also encourage you to test the truth of that good news. If you have questions or, or roadblocks in your mind, then please explore them and feel free to ask us about them. Maybe you ha have a problem with the reality of hell or the reality of the Bible or whether there is only one truth or perhaps you struggle with how evil could exist if God is good and all-powerful. Let me encourage you to test those thoughts and those claims and take the opportunity to talk to other Christians here today. Perhaps you have a history with Christianity. One that has been damaging or hurtful. Or one that makes you skeptical of the things that it claims. Let me encourage you to explore those. And to consider whether your experience actually lines up with what the Bible teaches and with what you see in Christians here today. 
And finally, let me ask, have you considered whether the good news of the gospel rings true for you personally? You see, the gospel that I've talked about all along is the message that even though we were born into sin, even though we deserve God's righteous wrath as a penalty for our sin, He sent His Son, Jesus, to live as the only human being to have ever lived in perfect obedience and to die on a Roman cross in our place so that by turning from our sin and by trusting in Him, we might be saved from the wrath of God. It is from Him that our salvation comes. Perhaps you're not sure about that claim. Maybe you don't think your sin deserves that. Friend, let me encourage you to consider that truth for yourself and to talk to other Christians or to me about it. Because along with millions of others throughout history, we would love to tell you why we've tested the truth and found it to be true. And brothers and sisters, such testing is not just for those who are yet to believe. Let me encourage all of us to continually seek God's Word and to test it. Those spoils that I mentioned earlier, keep bringing them before the Lord. Keep encouraging one another to see how God is at work and how He addresses our doubts and our fears and concerns. Because God is faithful and true and you can test His truth. And you can trust His truth. Which brings us to our final point. Let's read verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now, I'm sure the people of Samaria uh, didn't need a whole lot of faith to be able to act on this report of good news. They were so desperate for any hope that they just they stampeded out of the city. And let's be honest, isn't that sometimes the reason that we don't run to Jesus to receive the spoils of His good news? Isn't that the reason why we don't run to Him? Because we don't see or realize the desperate state of our own souls? We go through life floating in and out of hobbies and jobs and relationships and fad diets, all the while thinking, hey, we're, we're all good. The storehouses of, and the wine presses, they're all nice and full. God is obviously happy with me. We're sweet. Is there not, more often than not, a lack of awareness of how desperate our souls are, how greatly in need we are of spiritual food. Friends, it is often only when we recognize that we need God to live, even more than we need food and drink, even more than the air we breathe, that we respond to Him accordingly. Trust the truth. Well, this passage finishes by showing us how what Elisha prophesied in verse 2 regarding the captain comes about. 
The captain is trampled to death in the stampede. And the word of the Lord, as spoken through Elisha, is fulfilled. The repetition, this emphasizes the point that the captain's unbelief has been met with the judgment of God. Verses 18 and 19, these are basically a cut and paste of verses 1 and 2, which bookend our passage. And the author of Kings, he has done this intentionally. This passage, which is certainly one of great hope and blessing and good news of salvation, it ends with a warning of the consequences of unbelief. Verse 20 simply says, matter-of-factly, and so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. After you have tested the truth and found it to be true, friend, do not roll the dice on your fate. Trust the truth. Live by it and find that He is worth it. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, but I haven't tested it enough to know whether I should trust it yet. I understand that. I'm not encouraging you to have blind faith. But ask yourself, where does the testing end? What degree of certainty do you need? If you have confidence in the claims of the gospel and it rings true, why would you not trust Him today? Ask yourself, at what point does your testing and your questions start to become the high jumper's bar that you just keep raising and raising until it reaches impossible heights? If you have tested the gospel enough to know that it is true, and you know that you need to respond to it in repentance and in faith, then my friend, do not delay. Do not delay, but trust the truth. Let me finish by sharing with you a story from Mark 1. In verses 40 to 45, we meet another leper. This is one who lived about 900 years after the four that are in our passage. And he begs Jesus to heal him. And Jesus does. And then he instructs him not to tell anyone else about it. That's because he, he wants to be able to minister in the towns without large crowds. Have a look at what the leper does in verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. He went out and spread the news. This is good news. This man who had a disease of leprosy that left him outside the city, that left him discarded and left him rejected by society, he was healed. What could he do but spread that incredible news? Now, 
I don't want to commend the man's disobedience to Jesus. That's, that's not a good thing. But the difference between him and us is that we've been instructed to do the exact opposite. Jesus has told us to go into all the world, into a world that is dying, and to tell of his perfect salvation. Tell of his perfect salvation. And so as followers of Christ, we must go and proclaim the good news. What will you do with the good news? What will you do with the good news? Let's pray. Our Father, we... We see in this passage the necessity of sharing your good news with others. Lord, please remind us of how great your salvation is so that we might respond. by going and telling others about it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.